this morning, and, and this is on the heels of seeing what God's doing at the Bridge Youth Center, to look for that relationship with those in the community. Maybe it's through one of the ministries here we have at the church, but it's just as simple as knocking on your neighbor's door and saying hi. Something we don't do in our culture or in our society anymore. Someone knocks on your door, it's like, hi, who's here? <laughs> nobody called, nobody said they were coming, you know? And, and it wasn't like that so many years ago, guys. It wasn't like that so many years ago where, where neighbors knew one another. And as Christians, let us be different. Let us seek to have relationship with one another, with God, who, who desires that above all things to have relationship with us and has given us this wonderful example. All right, this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 3. Um, hopefully we can make it through... Oh, let's, I think we're going to make it through about 15 verses. I think we'll go that far this morning. Before we begin, I want to pray for our time together, um, pray for our church, um, but I also want to pray as we do for one of the other churches in our community. Um, uh, this morning uh, on our list is the Catalyst Church. Um, it's uh, it's uh, shepherded by Pastor Ryan McBride and his youth pastor, Justin Banks. Um, I'd like to pray for that congregation of believers gathering together this morning. They gather at the, um, the, uh, the Mountain View School, meet in the um, auditorium there, um, but also want to pray for um, their service and the pastoral staff and the work that they're doing in the church or as a church in the community that we live in. So let's pray. If you will, bow your heads with me. Father, we lift up this morning to you. God, we give you thanks for the time that we've already spent with you in song as we've worshiped you, Lord, and lifted up our voices singing praise and remembering, God, the good things that you've done for us, how much you love us, how you sent your son Jesus, Lord, to save us, how you desire, God, to be relationship, be in relationship with us. And for our time in the word this morning as we study, continue to study through the gospel of Luke, I pray, God, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to the truth that is found in your word and through the, through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we do believe that your word is truth. And we receive it, God, as um, an instruction manual for our lives. And so, Lord, help us, submit our, help us to submit to you this morning. Help us, God, to um, know you more. Help us, Lord, to see what you're like and to be more like you, God, that you, we would humble ourselves to you so that you may do the work in us. And Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters there at the Catalyst Church this morning who are also gathering in your name to worship you, to learn more about you. We pray for Pastor Ryan and, 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 and Pastor Justin and the others there who are, who are um, submitted to your authority and leading that church. God, we pray that your word would be taught, that truth would be brought forth. Um, we pray for unity for that fellowship, Lord. Um, we pray for uh, spiritual protection over them and that, God, you would provide for their needs and equip them, Lord, as they serve you by serving one another and by serving the lost in our community. We pray that blessing over them today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, the French emperor, right? A famous French emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte. You may not know this about him, but he said two very interesting things about Jesus. Um, he said this. He said, Alexander, Caesar, 
Charlemagne and I myself have founded empires. But, uh, but upon what do these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Yet, he says, Jesus alone founded his empire upon this, upon love, and to this very day, millions would die for him. Amen? Napoleon also said, said this. He said, if Socrates should enter the room, we would all rise and do honor him. But if Jesus Christ came into the room, we would all fall down and worship him. And there's no doubt, I, I, I mention these things because as we read through chapter three and chapter four, there's no doubt that Luke would have agreed with these words of Napoleon. For in these next two chapters, Luke makes it clear that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is indeed the son of God. And therefore, he is worthy of our worship the Son of God, who is worthy of our worship, the Emmanuel. So if you'll read with me, follow along in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, in the 15th year, now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Itria, and of the, and of the region Tractionitis, and and um, Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Ananias and were Annas, excuse me, and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into the into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see, shall see the salvation of God. Then verse 7, he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, verse 10, the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? And he answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized. And he said to him, and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Now, it says in verse 15, as, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. John answered, saying to all, 
I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And many other exhortations he, John, preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch began being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he, for all the evils with which Herod had done, also added this. Above all, that he, John, should be shut up in prison. And Lord, as, this, as we've read your word, Lord, this is truth. This has alone the ability and the power to penetrate into our hearts and our minds and to change us. And God, as we read here the words of John the Baptist that's been recorded by Luke, we know that there must be a change in our life, a change upon coming to you and an ongoing change as we're renewed by the power of your Holy Spirit through that, that unquenchable fire, God, that refines us. And we know, Lord, that as we've experienced that in the past, that it, 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 can be, it can be painful at times. But Lord, we know that when we're in the refiner's fire, that you're doing a good work in us. And so Lord, for those who are in the midst of the fire this morning, I pray, God, that they wouldn't seek to escape. For those of us who, Lord, are in the trials of, of, of your good work, I pray, God, that we would submit ourselves to you. Lord, we'd see that um, it's necessary it's a necessary thing, Lord, and, and that we should desire to, to, to be more like you. Lord, help us to see your example this morning, and Lord, help us to be changed into your image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, as we continue through this book, I want to first point out that we're once again, as we're reading in this chapter, we're once again reminded of the fact that Luke, as he stated in the beginning, is giving us an orderly account of the life of Jesus Christ. And in the first two verses of this chapter, which seem a little laborious with all the names and the titles of the people that we're reading about, um, uh, we see that, the, that in the first two verses that they're illustrating something for us. And, and, and what they're doing is, is they're giving us a, some specific information. Luke's giving us specific information which tells us exactly how much time has passed. There's a timeline that's been established at the beginning of this book. And, and as we've continued on through the life of Christ, um, Luke gives us certain events. He references certain people to continue to show us the timeline uh, of which things are taking place. And what we know is, um, as Luke tells us about how much time has passed specifically in this chapter, he's referring us back to chapter 2 and giving us a, a space of time between the events recorded at the end of chapter 2 when Jesus was 12, is what it tells us there, at that time when he had uh, gone to Jerusalem with his parents, and his parents had left with the relatives, and we know that Jesus stayed behind, unbeknownst to his parents. And he was there in the temple where he was questioning the religious leaders and um, to their amazement. And, and, and at that time when he was 12, until now, we see a space of time has taken place. And, and these events mentioned here in chapter 3 about, about John the Baptist and when Jesus began his ministry, um, it, it shows us, it tells us now that Jesus was about 30 years old. That's what we can deduce from the things that we read here. And so 
I'll explain. In order to establish this timeline, Luke begins by telling us in verse 1 that it was the 15th, reign, uh, 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, who was, of course, we know, the ruler of Rome. Now, at the beginning of chapter 2, you can look back there if you wish, Luke told us, as, as, as he's continuing this, this, these, these, uh, this record of these events, Luke told us that in chapter 2 that Augustus was Rome's Caesar at the time of Jesus' birth, right? But what we know historically, when we study out history, we know that, that Augustus died in 14 AD. And at that time, the Roman Senate transferred Augustus's power to his stepson, Tiberius who's mentioned here in Luke chapter 3. Who, history tells us, archaeological finds tell us that he was 56 years old at the time that he had this, this power transferred over to him. As a result, Tiberius ruled over the Roman Empire for 23 years until his death in 37 A.D., so in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, in the year 29 AD, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of, Herod, of Judea, and Herod and Philip and Lysanias were the tetrarchs over the three other regions of Canaan, we see as a result of this that John the Baptist, at this time, Luke tells us, that John the Baptist began his ministry. The ministry of preparing the way for the Messiah. And he did so at this time by going, it says, into the region of Jordan or the Georgian region, Jordan region and, and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. And according to verse 2, it says that he did so, he did so upon God's command when God's word came to him while he was still in the wilderness. And um, this also points out that John's ministry, John who we've been reading about from the beginning of this book as well, that, that John's ministry was part of God's perfect timing. And how everything that relates to God's Son is also on a divine schedule. That's relayed to us, conveyed to us many times through the New Testament. That the prophetic schedule of the Messiah, everything that, that, that we see about Jesus Christ is always on God's divine schedule. In our men's group on, 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 Sunday, on Friday mornings, we've been studying through the, the gospel of, Luke, of Mark. And one of the things that we continually read about in regards to Jesus Christ was that it was not yet his time. There was a time for everything to take place. God had a plan. And even here with John coming back onto the scene, beginning his ministry, this was in accordance to God's plan. But notice in verse 2 that Luke also points out, uh, we, we read who God's word came to, but verse 2, Luke also points out that, that, that um, in, in coming to, to, to John, when Ananias and, and Caiaphas were high priests, um, this information is intended to do more than just to, ha to establish. Um, it's, it's intended to do more than just establish a timeline of, of events for us, or to help establish a date for for when these things took place. For because this information about the high priest, which which is given to us here, this information about the high priest. Um, in, 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 in accordance to when the word of God came to John, also reveals to us who the word of God did not come to. 
There's, there's a contrast being painted for us. So we have a, an establishment of the timeline of events, knowing who was high priest also at this time, but also the mention of the high priest at this time should, should ring something in our mind and go, why was it given to John? Why was it not given to the high priest? After all, they were responsible for the spiritual well-being for the religious leadership of the people. The high priests were. When you do a little research about the situation, about these high priests, you quickly see the reason for why God's word did not come to them. Now, Annas, he was rightfully appointed as the high priest in 6 AD. Historical records show us that. And according to Numbers chapter 3, this position of high priest, as it was set up by God from the very beginning, that this position was a position that was to be held for life. You didn't serve a certain amount of years, and once your time was done, and then you turned it over to someone else. It was a lifetime appointment. However, Annas, who was supposed to have been high priest for his entire life, was removed by high priest, as high priest by Pontius Pilate in 15 A.D., And of course, we know that he was the Roman governor over Judea, this region that John is now ministering in. And Pontius Pilate, who will later come up as a key player in the history and life of Jesus Christ, we know that he appointed Annas' son-in-law, Caiaphas, a family relation in his place. And there was a lot of political reasons for that that we're not going to go into this morning. So even though Caiaphas had been appointed as the new high priest, the Hebrew people would have still considered Annas to be the true high priest. And this, is, this explains why at this time Luke mentions them both as the high priest, even though this was a direct violation of God's law, um, even though there was supposed to only be one at any given time. But the fact of the matter is, is when we look at the lives of these guys, is what we see is that both of them, both of them were not good priests. They were both corrupt, they were both evil, and they were more concerned, both more concerned about keeping their political power than about the things of God or the spiritual well-being of God's people. Consequently, these men were the ones who paid, these very men who we read about here were the ones who paid the 30 pieces of silver to to Judas, right? To Jesus' betrayer. And, and, And these were the ones that had Jesus ultimately arrested, In fact, on the night when Jesus was arrested, he was first taken to Annas, right, the rightful high priest. And and Annas, an ungodly man, in, in opposition to God's law, he unlawfully questioned Jesus in the middle of the night and then and then sent him to Caiaphas. And we know that Caiaphas, at the first trial of Jesus, that he unjustly tried Jesus and then unjustly unlawfully tried Jesus and then unjustly turned him over to the Romans to be crucified. In light of this, it's not so much as a surprise, I think, for us that when the word of God came, specifically the word of God that John received, which was to prepare the way for the Messiah, that's a pretty important word from God, right? Prepare the way for the Messiah. When this word came to John, it did not come to these ungodly high priests of Israel, but rather to John. And upon receiving the word of God, if you look here in verse 3, it says that he, John, went into all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism 
of repentance for the remission of sin. As it is written in in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet saying, and of course the the, the quote from the book of Isaiah, the, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. It's an awesome passage of Scripture. It's an awesome prophecy. It's an awesome command by which John the Baptist fulfilled as he prepared the way. And when it comes to John the Baptist, as you guys know, there's not many details accounted in the Gospels about him. We don't know a whole lot about him as a person. And the reason for why this is is because John's whole purpose was was to point people to Jesus, was to prepare the way for the Messiah. And John knew this, and and he even said at one point to those who followed him, his own disciples, he, he said this to them about Jesus. He said, he must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is earthly. And of course, John was speaking of himself. And, and he said, and speaks of the earth. And he who comes from heaven is above all. Again, John pointing people to the Messiah. And the fact of the matter is, is that as Christians, guys, when we look at the ministry of John the Baptist and see it as an application to our own lives, we should see that we all share in the same ministry. The same ministry of John the Baptist in in that we also are pointing people to Jesus and and then proclaiming to them the the, the hope of of his glory, of of the glory of Christ, like it tells us in Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through 29, I encourage you to read it. it. It really declares part of that ministry that we've been called into. Consequently, that same ministry that we called that we're called into as as John the Baptist to 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 point people to Christ requires the same kind of um, attitude, the same kind of heart, the same kind of preparation that we see John took upon himself. In that we must also decrease in our lives. We must also decrease and allow for Jesus to increase into life in our lives. And and the reason for why is because Jesus is the one who people need to know. They're the one that he, that they need to know. They need to know Jesus. And God's desire in that is for us to die to ourselves and to live for him so that we might, that we might by our godly works, right? And, and, and in other words, in the way that we speak, in the way that we live our lives, that these things would be a witness. Like John was a witness might be a witness to those around us of who Jesus is and what Jesus is ultimately like. Now, what we do know about John the Baptist is that he was a different kind of guy. A lot of guys say that he was weird. And yeah, he is weird. He's a weird guy. He's a different guy. Who, according to Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, he says, He lived in the wilderness. Where was he when the word of God came to him? He's in the wilderness. You know, and, and, and spiritually speaking, I don't want to go into too much of the, the, the illustration here for us, but being in the wilderness, guys, spiritually speaking, is not always such a bad thing. Often God's word comes to his people when they're in a wilderness time, when they're in a wilderness area. But John the Baptist was in the wilderness. He was waiting. He was prepared. It says in addition to being living in the wilderness, he was clothed in camel's hair, 
He wore a leather belt around his his waist. He ate grasshoppers. Actually, grasshoppers is mild. He, He actually ate locusts, which are like really big, ugly grasshoppers, and wild honey. And um, he's a different guy. We also know that John spent his time in the region around the Jordan River where he preached this message, it says, uh, at the right time, at the right place, a message of repentance and baptized the people who came to them. In light of this, I want to point out that some people think that repentance when we're talking about it in the context of, of biblical repentance and in the context of the repentance that we see John calling these people who had come to him, that, 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 that some people think that repentance is mostly about feelings, okay? Especially if you ask somebody in the world, what does that mean when you say you're sorry? They, th- they relate it to a feeling, that repentance is mostly about feelings, especially when it comes to feeling sorry for your sin. And we can even think about that in our own minds, in our own relationships, because when we want, when someone comes and apologizes to us and says they're sorry, lots of times all we're concerned about is that they feel sorry for what they've done. And if they don't, we make sure they do. <laughs> right? There's this tendency, but, but I'm here to tell you, repentance is not that. Repentance is not mostly about feelings. It's not, it's not about just saying sorry for your sin. And even though it is good to feel sorry about our sin, we must understand that repentance is not a quote-unquote feelings word. Repentance is not a feelings word. It's an action word. Repentance is an action word. And John makes that clear in the words that he speaks to the people that come to him. And this is why John... John called the people who came to them to really make a change. Not just a, an outward change, but an inward change, a change of their mind. It has to start there. He was calling them to make a change of mind, not to merely feel sorry for what they had done. So repentance speaks of a change, not only a change of mind, but a change of direction. Because when you change your mind, there's a change in the direction that you're going. A change of direction, not, not a, a sorrow in the heart alone. And, and, and the first step in this change of direction um, in, in, in relationship for John and what he was preaching was this call to be baptized. That was the first step in the repentance that John was calling people to do, to be baptized, to change the direction, to take action. And even though baptism, this is a pretty cool thing, baptism was not a new thing. John John coming and baptizing was not something new for the Jewish people. Because the Jewish people would regularly baptize the Gentiles who converted to Judaism. Remember, they were supposed to be a witness before all the nations of who God is and how God desired and pursued after them and that they could come to know God through the Jewish uh, religion for their, through their faith. And so, so even in the temple, there was a court referred to as the court of the Gentiles, a place for them to come and to worship God, to be a part of God's plan. And, 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 and in that conversion process, these heathen, if you will, or pagan Gentiles, from the, 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 the view of the, of the Jewish people, they would be baptized upon conversion. So the fact that John was 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 doing a baptism now was not, not unusual, but 
the fact that John was baptizing his fellow Jews, that was an unusual thing. After all, they were the sons of Abraham, right? Why would they have a need for this? And for a Jew at this time, to submit to a baptism was like saying, I'm as bad as the heathen Gentiles. And yet, this was a true mark of humility. This was a true mark of humble repentance and a radical rededication to the Lord. Therefore, John's call to be baptized was a necessary part of his ministry in preparing and preparing the way for the Messiah. Because through this baptism, it called forth the humility of the, of the Hebrew people to recognize some things about themselves. It was a way of preparing for the Messiah. And this was because John, John the Baptist, through baptism, was calling the very sons and daughters of, of Abraham, as John reminds them of this, right? He is he, calling the very sons and daughters of Abraham who at this time were clearly putting their eternal hope in the fact that they were Abraham's descendants. He was calling them to humble themselves. He was calling them to acknowledge the fact that they were sinners who were in a need of a Savior, preparing the way for the Messiah. In need of a Savior to forgive their sins. In need of a Savior to deliver them from their sins and to make them also spiritually clean. And this is why John the Baptist, upon seeing Jesus not far from this moment that we read here now, that, that Jesus, that John the Baptist, upon seeing Jesus, would say to the crowds who had gathered to him, maybe some of these very same people that we read about here, he would say to them, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 5, uh, I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to go over it to you in conjunction of what we're reading here because the Apostle Paul takes a moment to explain what we're reading here to the early church. And in those first five verses of, of chapter 19, Paul explained that John's baptism called people, specifically called these people, these Hebrew people, it called them to look forward to the coming of the Messiah, why? John was preparing the way. He was calling them to look forward to what God was going to do. And in doing so, he, he pointed them to the work that God was going to do, which would make a way for those who repented and put their trust in the Messiah to have their sins forgiven. But it also tells us, Paul also tells us in the same passage of Acts, that when we are baptized today, that when we are baptized today, we're not, we're not looking forward as much as we're looking back to the finished work that Jesus did on the cross. John's baptism was pointing forward, preparing the way for the Messiah, the Savior, and the things that he would do. Our baptism points, points back to the things that Jesus has done, the work that he did that makes available to us the very same forgiveness of sins and the same spiritual cleansing that those who John the Baptist were looking forward to. Guys, a simple way of putting this is to say that John's baptism was a preparation for Jesus and for what he was gonna do, while our baptism is really, it's a proclamation. It's a proclamation, our baptism today, that Jesus commanded us to do in his name that our baptism today is a proclamation which declares that Jesus has come to the world around us. 
and that he did the necessary work through his death for the forgiveness of our sins to restore us back into that relationship with God the Father. And either way you look at it, guys, be clear about this. Either way you look at it, whether it's John's baptism or the baptism that we enter into today, it does not deliver a person from their sin. Baptism does not deliver a person from their sin. Baptism does not save a person in light of that from the judgment that is to come. Baptism only points to the Son of God who does save. The Son of God who saves us, who does deliver us, and it gives us a very graphic picture right of that spiritual cleansing which we receive when we put our faith in Jesus. The dead man going into the water did to our sins yet coming out alive, spiritually cleansed as we receive, that we receive as a result of putting our faith in Jesus and, and raised out of that spiritual death and born again into spiritual life. Now, the other interesting thing about, that we're told about John the Baptist is that he was a prophet of God. And, and, and he, we know as we've been studying through this that he came in the spirit of Elijah in fulfillment of prophecy. And we know they're still coming today as we look to the return of Christ that Elisha will come to this earth as one of the prophets preparing the way for the second coming of the Messiah. But we're told that John the Baptist, that he, 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 is, he is, was a prophet of God and, and um, coming in the spirit of Elijah, we know that he had been prophesied about. And Luke points this out in verses four through six by quoting that passage of scripture in Isaiah chapter 40, the italicized verses there in this, in this chapter. And really it's Isaiah 40, verses three through five. And in this passage, John is described, I love this, this is a really cool thing when you begin to break it down. He's described as um, a voice crying in the wilderness as a prophet of God, a voice crying in the wilderness. And when you begin to break this down and study it out, if you look at it in the Greek, the original Greek, the word for wilderness is the word eriamos. And, and it's used to describe the, 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 the word wilderness here, that, that eriamos is a word that's used to describe a desolate, an uninhabitable, uninhabitable and lonely place. And, and allow for that description to conjure some kind of some kind of imagery in your mind here because I think it's important when we look at the, the, the meaning behind this word. A, a desolate, uninhabitable, and lonely place. And, and John is this voice crying out into the wilderness. And in light of this, we see the idea of John being a voice that calls out to people who are in this kind of unfavorable or, or, or difficult place and in doing so brings hope to those who have none. That's what the voice does when it cries out into this, this hopeless place. And this was John's ministry as he was told here in fulfillment of the prophecy as he was told to make straight, level, and, and a, a straight, level, and, and smooth road. Bringing down the mountains, filling in the valleys so that all, why? So that all might see the salvation of God. And in this, there's some very important things that are being shown to us. And the most simplistic part of what we read here is that Jesus wants it to be easy for us to come to him. God wants it to be easy for us to be saved and to be restored into a relationship with him. Not saying that it is easy, but he wants it to be easy for us. There's much work that needs to take place. The work that Jesus came to do. 
And guys, religion, in the, in the negative sense, builds mountains. Religion, man's ways, creates valleys. Religion, in man's ways, makes the path crooked. But God has said, bring down those hills. Fill in those valleys. Make straight the path for all to see the salvation of the Lord. And we need to remember that as we engage people. We need to remember that as we have our own relationship with God so that all people might see the salvation of God. And this is a very significant thing because at this time, guys, remember the nation of Israel, as reminded by the opening verses of this chapter, was not only living under the rule of Roman leadership who was cruel and corrupt, this this wilderness-type place at this time that the Hebrew people were in, but more importantly, the Hebrew people were living in a spiritual wilderness. And the spiritual roads that they were traveling on were crooked and needed of repair. And at this time, we know, as I already mentioned, the Levitical priesthood was corrupted all the way from the top with these two two, 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 uh, family members ruling, really, as pawns of of the Roman government, but it was corrupted all the way from the top down as the whole of the religious leaders were nothing more than oppressive and legalistic hypocrites who sought to place heavy burdens on God's people. So now, more than ever, the people needed to hear a voice from God. And John was that faithful voice to come and herald the good news of God's deliverance and salvation for those who put their faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. And the truth is, it's no surprise, but the truth is, is there are still many people today who are living in and lost in a spiritual wilderness, one that is void of truth and one that is absent of hope. And they need to hear a voice crying out in the wilderness, a voice of hope, a voice of truth that will cry out to them and tell them the good news of God's salvation without putting mountains and valleys and crooked paths in their way. And the awesome thing about this salvation that God offers that makes everything flat, that makes everything straight, that evens the playing field, if you will, for all of us to come to him, is that the salvation that God offers is according to his grace, according to God's work. Meaning the salvation of God ultimately is a free gift, as you guys know, a free gift to those who believe. And there are no longer any spiritual mountains that we must climb. There are no longer any crooked paths that we must navigate and when God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us, he removed all these religious obstacles. The law, it says, was fulfilled by him that, that ultimately kept us separated from him. And so, so, so all that is left for us is to do is back to what John is pointing the people here to do. All that is left for us to do is to admit that we are sinners in need of a Savior and believe in our heart that Jesus is the Son of God, the one who came to climb the mountains that we could not climb, the one who came to navigate the roads that we could not navigate. And so John came and he brought these words of hope, but he also spoke words that cut to the heart. Is is the good news message a message of hope and of salvation and of eternal life? Absolutely the words there are, 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 are words of encouragement, but the gospel message, as, as also revealed by John the Baptist, are words, they contain words that need to cut to the heart. 
And before we go into this, I want to point out, I want to say that I believe that the church today as a whole neglects the second part. And it's sad because it leaves people in this place with no hope. It leaves people in this place ultimately where they're in a spiritual wilderness. And in verse 7, John's words, he said, Then he said to the multitude that came to be baptized by them, Brood of vipers. Translation, family of snakes. (laughs) Wasn't a compliment. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, hear the fruits, or therefore, excuse me, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now, even now, he's saying, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, Notice the response here in verse 10 to these words being called a family of snakes and about the judgment to come. So the people asked him saying, what shall we do then? What shall we do? And as I already pointed out, before a person can receive the salvation of God that we're talking about, they must understand that they're a sinner. They must admit that they are a sinner who is in need of a savior. That's the first step. And simply put, it's been stated like this, that without conviction and without confession, there can be no conversion, no newness of life. And in John chapter 6, verse 18, Jesus said that when he departed, when he would leave this world, that God would send to us his Holy Spirit for a specific ministry, for a specific cause. And at that time, the Holy Spirit would come to convict the world of sin, to convict the world of righteousness, and to convict the world of judgment. The very judgment that John himself is speaking about here. But Luke also points out in these verses that as the prophet of God, the one who came to prepare the way for the Messiah, John was also sent by God to convict the Hebrew people the Hebrew people of their sin and those who were resting in the fact that they were okay, that they were in this good place simply because they were children of Abraham. And so he spoke to their sin so they might see their need for a savior. And the other thing that needs to be pointed out is that as God's agent, John also warned clearly, John also warned clearly of a judgment that was to come in verse nine. The words that cut to the heart. And this warning of a coming judgment set alongside the call to repentance and pointing forward to the Messiah is ultimately led the people and is what led the people in verse 10 to ask this awesome question. What then shall we do? Jesus spoke of a very similar message when he walked the earth. And more than once people said, what must I do then to be saved? Same question. What then must I do? And this is important to take note of because if a person is never told, guys, if they're never told about the judgment that is to come, you know what? They'll never have a reason to repent. If someone's not told about the judgment that is to come, then they'll never see their need or have a reason to repent. No reason to turn away from their sins and no reason to turn to a savior. Why do it? What then shall I do? And when it came to the method by which John 
delivered this message, we see that, um, I'll put it lightly, it was not candy-coated. No fluff here with John. And I think we would all agree that addressing your audience as a family of snakes is not advisable, or is it a customary way to begin your sermon? And neither is asking them, and, and, and I'll paraphrase this, but he's like, not, after he calls them a family of snakes, he's all like, why are you here anyways? Good morning, you family of snakes. Why are you here anyways? But John wasn't interested, guys, in preaching soft messages that tickled the ears of those in his audience at the risk of leaving them in the place of danger. And this is what I see absent in the church today. And so even though John was a little weird, we see ultimately that he was a spokesman of truth. And so must all agents of God be spokesmen of truth. Us. If the truth is in us, and if we've received the truth, it's got to come out. If not, those people that we talk about loving We're treating them in an unloving way when we do not tell them their need for a Savior, the whole message, in love, to be a spokesman of truth. And then in verse 8, the truth, look here, the truth that John spoke of in light of the coming judgment is that they needed to bear fruits worthy of repentance. There's a phrase that's been sticking in my mind for the last, this, this last year. I've not spoken it as much as I would want to, but I speak it to myself all the time, and I love it, and I'm gonna say it again this morning. It's, it's simply what I see here in regards to this, this call to bear fruits worthy of repentance. It's, it's this thing to live like a Christian. Act like a Christian. Right? I mean, that's the very thing that the world says we're hypocrites for. And we're, yeah, we're sinners in need of a Savior, and we still sin and will sin until the day that Christ comes back. But so many Christians today just don't act like Christians. And in light of this coming judgment that, 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 that was John was speaking about, he spoke of this need to bear fruits worthy of repentance. Again, action, an action that revealed something that took place, revealed what they put their faith in. And guys, true repentance will always have fruit, right? True repentance will always have fruit. Now, I wanna, I wanna give a warning before we do this because the Bible says, I think our tendency when we hear this kind of stuff is to maybe look to the person to the right. True repentance bears fruit. I need to see a little fruit. Uh, maybe we look to the person to the left. But the Bible says, work out your own salvation and to do so with fear and trembling, not to work out the salvation of your, number, your neighbor. We cannot go around judging as if we're God, whether someone's conversion or way of life in Christ is genuine or not. We're not called to do that in this instance in regards to salvation. But nevertheless, we're called to work it out in our own hearts and see, has true repentance borne forth fruit? Does it bear forth fruit? Is it bearing forth fruit? 
True repentance will always have fruit. And we know from Galatians 5, here's, here's the umbrella of it or the foundation for that from Galatians 5, the basic fruit of a Christian's life that repentance bears forth is always first and foremost love. Love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And the attributes of that love is joy, peace, right? And so on and so forth. But love... True repentance will always have fruit. And the basic fruit of Christian's life is love. But in response to their questions, right, because each one was in a specific place, each one had certain struggles, each one had specific sins that they're dealing with, right, that we read here that, that, that in response to their question, John then went into some of the details to example what fruits worthy of repentance looks like. And in verse 11, he answered and says and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. So simple. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized. Brood of vipers. <laughs> And said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? And so he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. And they would do that, of course, to receive bribes and so on and so forth. Now it says, well, let's just stop there. No, let's read verse 15. Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts, about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying all, saying to all, Indeed, I baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strapped I am not worthy to loose. And he, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You see, guys, John's response to the people in order into the question that they ask, what then shall we do, right? His response can be summed up by saying this. Be generous, be honest. Be content. And, and not that that's all to it. That's not the, the whole of it. right? Love's the whole of it. But these are definitely aspects of that. Be generous, be honest, and be content. And, and it's worth pointing out, <laughs> it's worth pointing out, I think, that these, these instructions of John, these commands... They're quite ordinary when you think about it. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. And you're like, okay, give it to me. I'm ready for it. This is salvation from the judgment to come and heaven and eternal life and relationship with Jesus. And he says, be generous, be honest, and be content. Somewhat anticlimactic if you think about it. They're quite ordinary. As John really said, he demanded the people to share Share what you have. He said, to be fair with one another. And, and, and um, don't, don't be mean or cruel for, for any reason, right? And, and also, lastly, that they would be happy with what they have. So simple, so ordinary, but yet so impactful in our lives and the lives of those around us. 
And the truth is, these are the things that we teach to our smallest children, right? What do you teach your kids? Be generous, be honest, be content, only one cookie, happy heart. Share your toys. These are things that we teach to our children, but these words of John point out that integrity, guys, these words of John point out that integrity in the ordinary things is still a mark of true repentance. Integrity in the ordinary things, in the everyday life of things, is important. Live like a Christian. I think it's, it's important to understand. I think it's important to understand because we sometimes think that, I think, I think it's important for us to understand this, that, that integrity in the ordinary things is, is the true mark of repentance. And I think it's important to understand this because um, we sometimes think that God requires us to do great or impossible things to demonstrate our repentance. Okay, God, I'm going to give away 90% this week. I send a lot. Or, you know, go start an orphanage in Africa. Or, you know, I mean, it's, 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 we, th- we think that God requires so much more of us that we overlook the basic thing, the most important thing, in order to demonstrate in repentance. Yet, yet he's, 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 let me bring it even back down to a more simplistic thing. You know, sometimes in, in, in our Christian lives when we sin and we're feeling convicted and our heart may be condemning us, um, uh, not that God condemns us, but certainly our heart is evil and will condemn us when the Holy Spirit's convicting us and trying to draw us back to God. You know, it's, 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 we, we even go back to the basic things that we know we should be doing, right? Going to church, praying, reading our Bibles, telling others about Jesus, all out of a love for God and a love for others. But, you know, we sin and we repent. Like, oh, I haven't read my Bible in, in five days, so um, I'm going to read, you know, the whole book of Leviticus <laughs> in one sitting. You know, and, 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 and guys, it's not, it's not like that. That's religion. That's the mountain, the valley, the crooked path. And what God says is just the, the reason why I want you to come back and to read my word, even if it's one verse, is because in that we have relationship with God through his son. You see, he's clearly, God is clearly looking for integrity in the ordinary things, in the everyday of life. And this is further explained for us in Micah chapter 6, six Verse 8, which says this, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And this morning, God's looking at us, guys. He's beside us. And it's, it's as if the Father is reaching out his hand and is saying, can we walk together? Taking his child by the hand. That's a lovely picture, awesome picture. And he's reaching out to you guys this morning. He's reaching out to us once again and say, can we just walk together? Can you just take my hand? 
to walk humbly with our God. Now, even though John had listed some specific things to do, guys, I wanna, I wanna end with this if the worship team will come back up. He is in no way suggesting that they had to do something other than repent and believe in order to be saved, right? But John was teaching them a truth about repentance, guys, in that genuine repentance is evidenced by a change in a person's life. Unless we go away from here this morning and thinking, okay, now I gotta bring forth some changes in my life. Pull up my Christian spiritual boots and go out there and get the work done. That's, that's not right. Because, guys, genuine change, genuine change and ongoing change only comes through an encounter with and a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's through him. It's through taking dad's hand and walking with him and letting him do the work in us. And this is one of the reasons, the many reasons for why John was called simply to do this, to point people to Jesus. The one, according to verse 16, who is mightier than him, whose baptism is with Holy Spirit and fire. And, and the Holy Spirit, guys, the outpouring of the promise that, that we enter into of the new covenant. And through the Holy Spirit, the fire of the Holy Spirit, we are not only made new, we're sanctified new as we walk with God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time, Lord. I pray, God, that we would see that you're the one that, that has called us into this relationship. You're the one that does this work in us and through us, that, Lord, we, like the children of Israel, are being called here. We just need to humbly submit and receive. So, God, may we do that this morning. May we humbly submit ourselves and receive the work that you're doing in us as a good thing for us. Lord, help us just to trust in you as we walk with you hand in hand through this life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Will you guys stand?